Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, December 12th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a former state legislator in Mississippi stands accused of sexual harassment. It's unfortunate if any other females actually worked for him, that he would use his position of power to harass. We'll hear from Democratic and Republican colleagues of Representative John Moore. Then, a StoryCorps conversation about traveling the world on $5 a day. Plus, find out why Mississippi nonprofits are concerned about the coming tax overhaul. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Republican member of the State House of Representatives has resigned his post in the midst of sexual harassment allegations. On Friday, he cited health reasons for his departure after 22 years of service. The chair of the Education Committee had open-heart surgery in March. Monday, he said he didn't know of any complaints, but Mississippi Speaker of the House Philip Gunn says he knew about the inquiry. Speaker Gunn says multiple women came forward to complain about Representative Moore. They are aren't releasing names or details. Republican Jeff Smith of Columbus chairs the House Ways and Means Committee. Well, I heard Friday night, like a lot of people did, or Friday afternoon late, and uh, I was very surprised. I've known John since his first day in the legislature. I came one term before him, and have always found him to be uh, a friend, and uh, I was uh, surprised, to say the least. When you hear this kind of thing, and it's going on nationwide, your thoughts on what it means for uh, our elected officials? You know, I guess as an attorney and as a former prosecutor before I was in the legislature, you you, you wonder, I guess, first of all, why those sort of allegations come out. Uh, there's generally... You know, there's usually some sort of some truth in them, and it's it's often a uh, she said, he said, and often perception plays a, a a different aspect in here. But specifically, answer your question. I'm disappointed at what is going on nationwide, and so. But the speaker started three years ago. We all the members have mandatory sexual harassment training and. You know, we actually have uh, female attorneys, which I thought was pretty bright, to sit sit down with us in group in a group and tell us a little bit about the do's and don'ts of of sexual harassment. Well, when you think of Representative Moore and these allegations, do you have any idea what may have transpired, or is this totally in the dark? Yeah, I, I really am. John is, uh, you know, sort of meek and real mild. He he doesn't talk a whole lot. He's I, I was flabbergasted. I mean, I've never heard any rumors or hints that John had, and I don't know if John's done anything. I don't. I don't mean to insinuate he has, but. I have not heard any inkling. Uh, the only thing I had ever heard was that, you know, three or four years ago when we started getting the uh, 
sexual harassment training that it was mandated by the speaker and lieutenant governor, there had been a report that there had been an official complaint filed, and that's sort of what started us to have this training to make sure that it was nipped in the bud, which was long before it got so popular, I guess, you know, and uh, uh, the reporting of it got so popular. But no, no names were ever put with who the perpetrator might have been. We understand from the House Speaker's office that there will be no investigation. Do you think there should still be an investigation? Oh, no. I, I mean, what, what, what? obviously, probably, I don't know what has happened here, but being a long-term member and a former member of the Ethics Committee, generally, if there's something like this, the Ethics Committee would work it up, and then there is a person that's involved or the person that, has been named as the uh, potential uh, guilty party is is notified and is given some options of what he could do or or possibly how this could be handled. I'm not sure how far, if any, the investigation had gone. I had just heard rumors that today I've heard rumors that their ethics committee had had gotten involved, but I would think that it would end it once he's involved. Now, anybody that's that has any legal training would know that if there's any substance to any of this, I mean, you do have the civil courts. Do you think this will change the dynamic among members as they deal with each other in the legislature? We probably will, and and, and maybe, maybe not necessarily all for the good of, you know, we're from the South, and, and, and we're huggers and... and 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 we're we're real bad at men are real bad at saying I think are innocent nice things to women like you look nice today I, I'm afraid all of that may suffer and you may not have the congeniality you once had uh, there there is some of this goes on but the vast majority of us work together very well and I don't see any of that as far as between the members. You know, you 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 see a a good working relationship. So I just hope that doesn't suffer from an abundant people being you know cautious. Representative Jeff Smith talking about Republican Representative John Moore of Brandon with our Desiree Frazier. Democratic Representative Kathy Sykes of Jackson says she's encouraged by those who are speaking out. It's unfortunate if any other females actually worked for him. Uh, that he would use his position of power to um, to harass. However, with, without the details, it's hard to you know it's hard to really comment on uh, on the issue. And also, there should certainly be uh, a deep investigation as to as to the validity of, of the accusations. But uh, me personally, when an accusation is made. Me personally, I just always assume that it's the truth. You know, if it's not the truth, then it certainly needs to be disproved. But I know it takes a lot for women to have the courage to speak up. So many have remained silent, and uh, a lot of times years go by uh, before, you know, they actually speak up about abuse that that they've suffered and. Uh, and women, you know, they do so for, for various reasons. It's a hard thing to get over. And, you know, I am 
just saddened that this revelation had to break out like it did. And, you know, I just assumed initially that uh, Representative Moore was uh, resigning on his own volition. And it's just uh, shocking to hear that these allegations have surfaced and may be the impetus behind his uh, resignation. The House Speaker's office says that there will be no investigation because he has resigned. Okay. That's the House rules, you know. So all I can say is uh, I just hope that he has a healthy retirement. I don't know if there is a a person that you can just say this is what that person who would be accused of sexual harassment looks like. Personally, from my interactions with him, I never would have thought that these allegations would have would have come, you know, toward him. But I'm not that familiar with him, and my uh, interactions were, were very, very limited. Well, Representative Sykes, we appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts on this. I'm just encouraged by the women that have decided to speak up. You know, even though it may have been one year, it may have been 20 years, uh, the fact that they're speaking up is encouraging to me. You mean nationwide? Nationwide, because so many are silent. And this uh, culture just perpetuates it because no one speaks up about it, and it just continues. It's time for it to stop on all sides. It's just time to pull the veil off and, and deal with it. If these allegations were proven to have some validity, um, it was appropriate for him to resign? We'll never know since he did resign. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Governor Phil Bryant said in a statement workplaces should be free of harassment, and in January he issued an executive order requiring all state employees to complete sexual harassment training. Coming up, a story core conversation about traveling the world on $5 a day. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation are funny until you think about someone falling off the roof at your house. On the next Money Talks, we'll take your personal finance questions, but also review Kiplinger's Holiday Disasters. What does homeowners insurance cover? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire that damages your home? If a Grinch snatches your gifts, that's on Money Talks today at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio, then later on demand at mpbonline.org slash money talks. Arthur Fromer's been writing about traveling the world since 1957. In this week's Mississippi Stop on the StoryCorps mobile tour, Ellen McLean talks about using Fromer's popular book, Europe, on $5 a day. McLean talks about how it led to a job in London and humorous misunderstandings about the uniform. I started working summers saving money so that I could go to Europe when I graduated from college, which is what I did. Saved my money. When I graduated from college, I got a Eurail pass, as one did then, and Arthur Fromer's book, Europe on $5 a Day. Splendid. And took my trip that I'd been dreaming about. Then, while traveling in Europe... Well, I went to London first and decided the second day in London I had way too much luggage. So I took a suitcase to the Arthur Fromer office in London and asked if I could leave it, that I had packed too much. And so I left my suitcase there and then took off for a month. Then what happened? 
When I got back to London, I went by the Fromer office where I met the manager, Mr. Hans Corticus. He had not been there the day I came in with my suitcase, and he said he was rather impressed with my chutzpah in dropping my suitcase off at his office. But I felt like I could because I had a Europe on $5 a day book. I was traveling on Fromer's book. So it and that was your ticket? And that, I thought, was my ticket to leave my luggage there. And he offered me a job and said, would you like to come work for Arthur Fromer here in the London office? And I was stunned and said, well, I wanted to finish my trip, but I would be in touch with him. So I went on up to North England and Scotland, then over to Ireland and flew home here to Jackson, talked to my parents. And a week later, I called him and said, I want the job. It was to work the winter season on a six-month contract in London, working as a courier, meeting thousands and thousands and thousands of tourists at Heathrow Airport, which was great fun for a while, although we did have one extreme incident, and we kind of all went on strike through a uniform we had to wear. Really, I think it's a funny story. I don't know if anyone else would, but... Tell me about it. This was in 1970, and we had these mustard yellow bell-bottom trouser suits, very (laughs) Carnaby Street and hip, but embroidered on the left-hand side of the chest was $5 a day. (laughs) And it's very interesting working at Heathrow Airport running around in a bell-bottom trouser suit with $5 a day stitched across your front. (laughs) And so all of us young women decided that we weren't happy with our uniforms and refused to wear them out to the airport. Didn't Froma understand what it was going to look like? (laughs) No, obviously not. But when he realized how unhappy we really were, not only did we not have to wear the uniforms, but he changed his company name. The London office became Arthur Fromer Travel International UK Limited. Very good. Which would not fit on anything we wore. So it it worked out quite nicely. But uh, that's how I ended up in London, was working for Arthur Fromer. And after that... How did you find some of your other jobs over there? Well, tourism is a very hard industry, especially if you're working in an international office. And by the time, after several years, I became UK reservations manager, which really means you work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Now, this was before uh, computers and cell phones. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All reservations, everything was done manually. You must have met some interesting people through that. I did. met some very interesting people, some that I exchanged Christmas cards for years. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Nonprofit leaders are worried any overhaul of the U.S. tax system may lead to a decline in charitable giving. It's a little complicated, but the gist of it has to do with something called the standard deduction. When we pay our taxes, we get to deduct things like mortgage interest, certain medical expenses, and charitable contributions from our taxable income. Or we can choose to use the standard deduction for our income category, whichever amount is greater. The tax plans being considered by the House and Senate both raise the standard deduction, which may seem like good news for John Q. Taxpayer. But here's the catch. Nonprofit leaders are worried the standard deduction increase might mean fewer people choose to give to charity since there won't be a tax benefit. Here's Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law explaining to our Mark Rigsby. The Senate version and the House version really don't limit the charitable deduction per se. What they do is they double the standard deduction or almost double the standard deduction uh, for taxpayers, and they take away some of the deductions that taxpayers used to be able to itemize, like the state and local tax deduction. And so what the effect would be is that while about 46 million taxpayers will itemize for 2017, the increase in the standard deduction would reduce that amount to about $13 million, and that means then the charitable deduction will only be available as an itemized deduction for those $13 million. And there's concern that that would re- uh, have an impact on the incentive to give to charities. Is this a good idea? You know, I don't think it really is a good idea. I think, you know, my, my take on the tax uh, act as you know as a whole is that it it's been quickly put together and it's got lots of problems and I've read it and uh, there there's some serious holes um, you know in terms of the, the specifically the charitable deduction um, I will say as a counter to that uh, Mississippians are some of the most um, generous people in terms of giving to charity and we're a state where we have kind of a low number relatively of itemizers. So people give to charity for different reasons besides the tax incentive. So, you know, certainly, you know, I think people still give to charity, but they're talking about a, a decrease of about 8% is what people predict to charities in the long run uh, because of the uh, increased itemized deduction. For those who are not familiar with the finite details of taxes, can you explain in layman's terms why people may not be encouraged to give to charity because of the possible change to the tax structure? Absolutely. A a deduction really is a way of having the government, in essence, pick up part of the cost of what we're buying. So, you know, when I have a business and I'm uh, paying expenses and I get a deduction for those expenses, that's costing me less out of pocket. And let me put that in numbers. Let's say that I pay taxes at a 25% rate. Um, What that means is when I take a deduction, I spend a dollar uh, on something, it's really only costing me 75 cents because if I hadn't taken that deductible expense, um, I would have uh, had to pay 25 cents in taxes anyway. So when someone gives to charity, and let's say they're in the 25% bracket, uh, their dollar uh, of contribution to that charity really only costs them ultimately, uh, in after-tax terms, 75 cents. So the higher the person's tax bracket is at that point, the more valuable that deduction is. You know, we've had tax brackets as high as 70%. So in those days, somebody giving a dollar to charity was spending 30 cents of their own 
and the government was in essence uh, picking up the other 70 cents through that deduction. So if you take the tax deduction away or take the incentive through the tax deduction away, then that dollar to charity, while I still might give it, will cost me a full dollar. Professor Richard Gershon is at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Thanks for being with us on Mississippi Edition. We do appreciate your time. My pleasure. Jane Alexander is with the Community Foundation of Mississippi. Her organization manages millions of dollars of endowment funds on behalf of many Mississippi nonprofit organizations. She tells our Mark Rigsby why a change in tax policy should matter to charities in the state. We are following this very closely um, in all of its iterations from the Senate bill, House bill, and now they're in conference and trying to figure out what they're going to do. So it's a little hard to prognosticate, and yet there are some some provisions in both of these bills that we do believe will make it into the final legislation that are concerning to those of us who uh, do philanthropy for a living. I think that um, a lot of it is removing some important incentives to give to charity uh, to the citizens of America. And we know that while people are charitable for reasons other than the tax deduction, um, but the tax deduction does factor into about the top five or six reasons that people give to charity. So if you remove that incentive, Um, It's not that people won't continue to support causes. It's just that that kind of extra reason for people to give will no longer be there. And I think what we will see is a a diminishment of how much people give and uh, to whom they give it. I think we'll see the breadth of giving change, and I think we'll see the depth of giving change. Are we talking about across the board, or are we just talking about the elite high-income people that donate, or are we talking about just about anyone? I think, of course, the first people that will be affected um, are the high-net-worth givers just because they are sophisticated and they employ uh, CPAs and other financial advisors to help them with this um, this thing that they do. And the high net worth givers in this country are very important. I mean, going back to the robber barons of the previous century, you know, how, where would we be without the Rockefellers and the Carnegies of the world? Uh, but what we also see in trends is that regular everyday givers sort of follow suit. You know, they see the example that are set by um, larger individual donors, and that sparks a thought that, hey, they'd like to get involved in this too. So, Of course, certainly, the folks who will be immediately affected by things like the estate tax changes and um, the charitable deduction changes, we'll see that first. But I think that what we learned from the 1986 and 87 tax reforms is that, unfortunately, there's kind of a trickle-down effect on charitable giving as well. What type of local or state groups receive funds from the Community Foundation for Mississippi? As I said before, we hold endowment funds on behalf of a lot of our, our organizations, um, for instance, the Symphony and New Stage Theater and some groups like that, who have been working for many, many, many years to um, secure their financial futures through endowment giving. So there are some provisions in this proposed tax legislation affecting uh, endowment giving that have been very concerning to us. Um, at present, I think they're they're kind of talking about applying these changes to primarily university uh, endowments, but 
we see that this is a slippery slope. I mean, what's to stop them next from saying anybody who's saving for their future, <laughs> if you're a nonprofit organization, this could stand to affect them too. Jane Alexander is president and CEO of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, in legal terms. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.